It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Welcome, everybody, to today's broadcast of Engage in Truth, a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church, located in beautiful Colorado Springs, Colorado. Well, in the coming weeks, the radio shows with Pastor John Bornstein will be preparing our hearts and minds for the Christmas season. Today, I'd like to focus specifically on the Incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's take a look at what it tells us about God, and frankly, let's take a look at what it really tells us about us. Today's show is based on the book Hidden Christmas by Timothy Keller. Many of you may know, Dr. Keller is a well-known pastor and Bible teacher. He's been a huge sort of mentor and influence on me. He has, for many years, he was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and he now works for Redeemer, Redeemer City to City. It's an organization focused on ministering to cities. Fittingly for the season, we're going to begin today, and we're going to end the show as well with song. I'd like to start with the lyrics of the song, How Many Kings?, by the band Down Here. They say, follow the star to a place unexpected. Would you believe after all we've projected, a child in a manger? Lowly and small, the weakest of all, unlikeliest hero wrapped in his mother's shawl, just a child. Is this who we've waited for? Because how many kings have stepped down from their thrones? And how many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? So we hear a lot in this time of year about Advent. I've been growing up about Advent. Sometimes I, I used to get confused. Like, Advent? Is that Christmas or Easter? But Advent... When we really look, we look at the history of Advent. It's derived from the Latin word meaning coming or arrival. The Advent begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas. It's the season when we look back to Christ's first coming as a baby born in Bethlehem and to his second coming. At that point, he will return to renew and redeem every part of fallen creation. Jesus Christ has come and will come again. The Advent season is therefore a time to reflect upon the promises of God and to anticipate the fulfillment of those promises. It's a time for remembering and for rejoicing. The following scripture is familiar, really just a favorite Christmas scripture that we get at this time of year from Isaiah 9, 2, 5 to 7. And we read, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Those were Isaiah's words under influence of the Holy Spirit. Charles Wesley captured this in a hymn, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. 
Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. A study of the Incarnation really can teach us many things about God, and it teaches us many things, if we're open to them, many things about us. Let's start, as Matthew does, by taking a look at the genealogy of Jesus. Sometimes this can be overlooked in the old King James. It was begat, begat, begat. And I just once again remember reading this as a kid and just sort of overwhelmed by it. And what was the significance? Why was this there? Why was it important? Let's take a look at that today. The first thing the genealogy tells us is that the gospel is good news, not just good advice. Genealogy means that this is a piece of history. This is not a once upon a time fairy tale. Unlike other religions, Jesus did not come to show us how to live to save ourselves with good advice. We would call that the doctrine of justification by works. He came, as Tim Keller says, to live the life we should have lived in our place and die the death we should have died in our place so that the penalty for our sins could be put on him and God could forgive us. That, my friends, is the good news. The true meaning of Christmas is that we are so lost so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the Son of God could save us. We cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We cannot on our own live a moral and good life. The next thing the genealogy tells us is that the gospel turns the values of the world upside down. In ancient times, your genealogy was your resume. You left out the more unsavory characters in your family that you didn't want to know the skeletons in the family closet. The genealogies in these paternalistic societies also did not typically include women. That would make Matthew's genealogy of Jesus a little unusual, a little unique. With that in mind, let's take a look at the women that are mentioned in the genealogy. These include Tamar, who committed incest with her father-in-law Judah, Rehab, or excuse me, Rahab, who was a, a Canaanite, a prostitute, Ruth, a Moabite, another foreigner, and Bathsheba who was, a, was an adulteress. I mean, the, the role of women is actually elevated strictly by the fact that they're mentioned as part of the genealogy. We see this time and time again with Jesus elevating the status of women. Also, the genealogy shows us that anyone can become part of Jesus' family. For anyone out there who thinks of themselves, oh, I just, I've done too much, I've made too many mistakes, I'm, I'm too far gone, Tim Keller at this point likes to say for emphasis, I don't care if you've camped out at the gates of hell. <laughs> there's, there's none more powerful than our God. And there is absolutely nothing beyond his ability to forgive and make clean. That is why he came. That is a message of the incarnation. The genealogy also shows us that God may take his time, but he keeps his word. Thousands of years before Jesus... God told Abraham that all people on earth would be blessed through him in Genesis 12.3. In Luke 1.54-55, it says that Jesus is the answer to that long-ago promise. It reads, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed 
forever. Even earlier in Genesis 3.15, God told of one that would, quote, bruise the head of Satan. God may appear to be slow to act, but he never forgets his promises. We need to remember historically in the nation of Israel, at the birth of Jesus Christ, it had been 400 years since Israel had had a prophet. 400 years. That's hard to sort of wrap our minds around. To put it in context, as a point of comparison, almost 402 years ago, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. So that gives us some perspective. Imagine how disheartening it might have been to the nation of Israel during those 400 years, especially as they were repeatedly conquered by Gentile nations. We can take heart in this, even though God may not move according to our timetable, that he always is on the move. Once again, to paraphrase Tim Keller, he says, God's will and his timing, which is part of his will, is what you would want if you knew what God knows. Remember that Romans 8.28 tells us, and we know for those who love God, all things, not some things, not many things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And in Hebrews 1.11, we are told, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, once again, all things, according to the counsel of his will. There are no coincidences. God is large and in charge. By that I mean no disrespect. Glory be to God. Lastly, the genealogy of Jesus tells us that Jesus, as portrayed in Scripture, is our Sabbath rest. As we examine the genealogy in Matthew a little bit closer, we start to notice some numbers. We see that Matthew says that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. There were 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon. And there were 14 generations from the exile to Christ. So six sevens. That makes Jesus the beginning of the seventh seven of generations. Seven in the Bible is the number of completion or perfection. Jesus is the ultimate rest, as described in Hebrews 4. The Sabbath of Sabbaths, as the Day of Atonement is called. We can rest from having to prove ourselves. God was able to use the troubled, imperfect lives of the people in Jesus' genealogy to accomplish his purposes. I think that we can take from that, if he can use them, he can use us too. We can rest in knowing that God is in control of history and that all wrongs will be righted, and that we will one day, one day, rest in his presence. Now that we've looked at the genealogy, let's see what the announcement of the advent, the coming of Jesus tells us. So further on in Matthew, this is chapter 1, 20 to 23, it reads, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid, to take to Mary or to, to, to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
So as all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. The full impact of this cannot be recognized without knowing that of all peoples of antiquity, of all peoples really, when you take a historical perspective, the Jews may have been least open to the idea that a human being could be God. We don't really think of much of that today. But Eastern religions, yesterday and today, frequently were involved with pantheism. They believed that God was an impersonal force permeating all things. So it was not out of the question that some people might have a greater manifestation of the divine. Western religions at the time were more polytheistic with stories of gods taking on human forms. Remember Barnabas and Paul as Zeus and Hermes in Acts 14.12. The Jews, however, believed in an infinite, transcendent, holy God beyond understanding. Think of their experience with God in the wilderness and on the mountain and uh, in the tabernacle. Uh, just his transcendence and his holiness and his power, that was God to the Jews. And yet, when we look at the life of Jesus in many ways and at many times, there is no doubt that Jesus declared himself to be God and that after he did, thousands of Jews that came out of this perspective came to believe him and to worship him. We see that in Acts 2.41. Next, if Jesus really is Emmanuel, God with us, what does that mean for us practically? We'll see that, number one, once we start to understand and accept the incarnation, it actually becomes easier to accept the rest of the teachings of the New Testament, especially the Gospels, where Jesus is calming the sea, and he's healing the sick, he's casting out demons, and he's raising the dead. Number two, It can create a personal crisis. When you look at the response of people to Jesus and the Gospels, there were three primary responses. Frequently, people were afraid. Uh, They wanted to get away from him or they wanted him to get away from them. Sometimes there was jealousy and fury, and there was also worship. The question then remains, how will we respond to Jesus? The incarnation is true. Number three, There is hope in this world and hope that this world is not all there is. Amen to that. And number four, God set aside his unimaginable glory that he held for all eternity, condescending to become one of us without beauty, money, or power. Should we then also set aside concerns of beauty, status, and health and and wealth and reach out to those without beauty money, and power. So let's explore these four practical implications of the incarnation. Let's take a look at them a little further. Let's examine them a little deeper. That Jesus is, number one, completely human on Mary's side, and number two, completely God via the power of the Holy Spirit that overshadowed her. So because Jesus is God, there is no middle ground. You are either for him or against him. Because of his claims to be God, he evokes strong responses from people as we've seen. By and large, they worshipped him or they tried to destroy him. 
He's so clearly declared to be God that each of us needs to do something with that. If he is God, what do we do with that? How then should we live? If he's not God, then we could ignore him. Yet how many Christians in the world today try and find middle ground? Jesus in Luke 6.46 said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet not do what I say? I want to, I'd like to read a quote that I have from J.I. Packer. And this was in his book, Knowing God. He says, For the Son of God to empty himself and become poor meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill-treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involved such agony, spiritual even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. It meant love to the uttermost for unlovely men. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, I'll be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after a a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. This is not the Christmas spirit, but it is the spirit of some Christians. Alas, they are many whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the marginalized of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get along as best they can. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christmas snob, for the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others, and not just their own friends, in whatever way there seems need. But because he is God, another practical implication is that there's no fearing of the future. There is hope. There is no dualism here. And by that, I mean there is no Star Wars, good side of the Force, bad side of the Force, trying to duke it out for dominance. There is only one all-powerful omnipotent, omnipresent God. Because all things work according to the counsel of his will, as we've seen in Ephesians 1.11, he has a plan and it will unfold in our lives and throughout eternity. Next, because he is human, we know that he understands. You can go to him. He knows what it is like to be in in hunger. He knows what it is like to be in pain. He knows what it is like to be rejected and to be betrayed and be an outcast. He knows what it is like to be poor, to be a victim of injustice. Whatever we are going through, he understands. The book book of Hebrews says he was tempted, just like us in Hebrews 4.15. Next, because he is human we know that we can be saved. So why did Jesus 
Why did Jesus Christ even become human? If you've ever really stopped to think about that. Well, what does it tell us about the nature of God? If, if God was different than he is, if God was completely and wholly and just and not loving, then he would never have to become one of us. He would say, as we uh, talked early, just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. If he was completely loving and not holy or just, then there would be no need to come down. He would just accept everybody. As some people like to think today, God just loves everybody and will accept everybody. But what we see in Scripture is a holy God who needed to meet the demands of justice and a loving God who wanted to save us. He accomplished both by the incarnation and by the atonement. The author of creation wrote himself into our story to save us. Next, let's take a look at the coming of the Magi. This is always interesting, the Magi, where they came from, and what what is their importance in the story. Well, the coming of the Magi teaches us three things. The wisdom of our world is always dated. The wise men were the intellectual elites of their day. We look down on astrology now, but what will the future look down on us for today? And we look back in uh, two or three generations at, the, at, things, at some of the things that they believed, and we can't believe what seems so ignorant to us. Well, if, you know, for those who are experts today, how ignorant may that look as we head into the future? Today's elites are tomorrow's astrologers. The wisdom of our world is never completely wrong. Through common grace, God provides wisdom, understanding, creativity to non-believers. The astrologers did find Jesus. The wisdom of this world will only find its fulfillment in Jesus. The wise men, by worshiping Jesus, were acknowledging that he was the fulfillment of what they were looking for. Well, that's it for today's show. We have a a beautiful song to follow. Just remember that the Christmas season says the immortal Son of God descended in time and space so that this world could be made right and our hearts that are so broken can be made whole. We'd like to end today with this beautiful Christmas song.
Greater than anything under 